Welcome to another episode of Innovation and the Future of Pharmacovigilance, a podcast series brought to you by Trillion Talks. I'm your host, Indiana Walia, and I'm delighted to navigate the dynamic world of pharmacovigilance and risk management with you. A quick disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of the individual guest and do not necessarily reflect the official views of Trudian Consulting or their company. We're all about fostering insightful conversations here at Trudiant Talks, and we want you to know that any product vendor or service mentioned does not imply an endorsement. If you're seeking a professional, uh, if you're seeking professional advice for specific situations, we encourage you to go to our experts. Please remember this podcast content is meant for information, informational and educational purposes only. Right. Today, we are incredibly lucky to have the wonderful Tony D'Souza, Global Head of Countries and Regions at Novartis as our guest speaker. Uh, Tony, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you, Andy, and thank you for having me. I really it's, appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, it's, we're really lucky to have you. Um, and I guess I really want to start by asking the, the question in PV, which is how did you get into PV? So it's really funny because, um, you know, and I'll get into my background a little bit further, um, but I'm a nurse by trait, an ER nurse. <clears throat> and um, when I was working in the emergency room, um, it's funny because I had no idea about PV, none. And I remember, you know, over 20 years ago, getting an adverse event form. And I remember throwing it in the garbage and saying, I don't know what the heck this is, you know, and literally put it in the garbage. And then a few years later, um, um, one of my colleagues from nursing school um, had reached out to me and said, hey, by the way, you know, I'm working at a pharmaceutical company and I'm doing, you know, you know, A, B and C and in, in AE collection um, and drug safety. And I was like, oh. That sounds interesting because, you know, uh, the, the lifespan within the emergency room is usually, you know, 70% turnover within two years. And I was there for four plus years uh, and over six, seven-ish um, altogether. And I kind of stumbled into it. And I took a contractor role as an entry-level associate clinical safety associate at the time and basically doing due diligence, um, you know, uh, for adverse event reporting and following up with healthcare professionals. And then um, I got a permanent position as a, a data management specialist, which I wasn't a data manager. You know, I had to learn, the, you know, data management, but I did that. And um, that's kind of, how I stumbled into it. And then I realized that, wow, there, there, there's a whole career out there that I can, you know, kind of explore. And that's kind of how I stumbled into it. And your, your career obviously took off from that point within PV. What, what, what did you think you would end up to be at that point so early on in your career? Or was it just all brand new to you? It was all brand new to me. Um, and my goal was to become like an associate director, um, you know, ultimately, you know, down the road, 20, 30 years. Um, 
but it kind of worked out a little bit better than I thought. Right. Um, you know, as my career progressed, so did my responsibilities. And fortunately I was able to get to a level where I am right now, um, as head of countries and regions. And I'm not sure if you want me to go through the different steps because there were multiple steps. I mean, I think, um, I think your career was, 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 uh, was very interesting because in the majority you've stayed at Novartis for pretty much your most of your career, but you did have a slight secondment out, I believe, at, at some point in your career to Bayer, was it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so as I grew um, in in my career and responsibilities within Novartis, um, I was exposed to many different things, right? Locally and globally. And also when I realized that I needed further education, right? To, to build within the organization and within the industry. And when I evaluated, okay, what's the best educational path to provide, you know, a career path for me? And, you know, I solicited feedback from the people that I trusted uh, within the organization and outside of the organization. And, you know, it was funny, it came up, you know, you know, an MBA, an MPH, because I, ha I had a BSN in nursing. And then I found a program that had an MBA and an MPH. And, you know, at that time in my life, you know, I was 27-ish, had one child, one on the way. And, you know, I told my wife, and I was still working in the ER. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I was working full time at Novartis and I realized, you know, that's what, what's in the best interest for me and my family. And my wife was really supportive, you know, at the time she's like, go for it. So I found this dual program and I said, oh, it's going to take like six, seven years. And she's like, go for it. And I did. And I got an MBA I got an MPH um, and it kind of, you know, really enlightened me that there's different things besides just being a nurse, mm -hmm. you know, and I learned a lot of different skill sets and I kind of grew within my career at Novartis and with the MBA um, to your point as to why I left um, to Bayer was there was an opportunity there to be a team leader. And I wanted management experience. I see. And I went there for a year and I had a team of, I think it was like eight to 10 people. Um, but I realized that the culture wasn't aligned with what really I wanted to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I came back to Novartis and I mm -hmm. took, you know, two steps back as a senior clinical safety scientist. Um, and it kind of grew from there, you know, um, I did that for a few years and then I got hired into the global RMP role, risk management role, which was evolving at that time in 2010 with the regulations from the European health authorities and other health authorities that have since evolved that really wanted, you know, RMPs and especially RMPs that are submitted with dossiers 
PSURs, et cetera. And I wrote the templates at the time. Um, wow. Yeah. And based on the regulations and the demands from other health authorities. And I did that for approximately three years. And then um, fortunately, you know, they believed in me and it was a big step in my career at a relatively young age after I graduated with my MBA and my MPH. And I was, you know, one of the first non-physicians um, to be um, named the head of uh, the country patient safety head for the U.S., which is the head of safety in the S in essence for the U S with regional responsibilities for Canada. So the country okay. patient safety head um, reported to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got, you know, when we took over GSK, um, the oncology division um, and then Sandoz and Alcon, I was also the, the head for, um, all of those different, you know, avenues within Novartis. All for the U.S. or for globally? U.S. and Canada at that U.S. Time, and Canada. From 2013 to 2018. And at that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a raft of uh, big demergers and mergers happening right now. Obviously, you've been involved with in recent history and past history. How was that? to you when you had these new organizations coming with their own structures and you overseeing all of these different areas or all these new uh, departments from an, a new acquisition? Um, well, it wasn't acquisition per se. It was a merger mm-hmm. within the Novartis um, family. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very difficult because, you know, you had my equivalent at Alcon you have yeah. my equivalent at, at Sandoz, not only within the U.S., but within Canada. And so we had six different locations, right? We had East Hanover for Pharma and Oncology for Novartis. Then um, in, in Alcon in Texas, we had a country patient safety head there. And then in Broomfield, Colorado for Sandoz, we had a, a country patient safety head there and a whole team. And they were centrally located which means they did central case processing for all of Sandoz. Then we had Toronto uh, that had Alcon, a smaller team there, um, and Boucherville that was Sandoz that had a relatively large team, and then the the Novartis team um, at Sandoz that was right outside Boucherville in Dorval. Um, So it was quite difficult to marry, you know, these different cultures, different experiences. We're talking about the generic, uh, Alcon, very um, uh, vision focused. Um, So it was very difficult to marry them. And when I was announced that I was taking over all of it, you know, it took a lot of travel to go into the different locations. but it was very successful in nature once we realized that we had one common goal, the organization had a common goal. And in, in my view, we had the right leadership at the time to, to merge everything. And it was very successful. And that's evident by if we look at the successful inspections 
audit outcomes, but it was a lot of work, right? Yeah. When marrying procedures, mm-hmm. right? Cultures. It is, it is quite difficult uh, and it takes time. And a lot of people, you know, especially senior leaders, they expect things to happen like that. Correct. Yes. And they don't <laughs> happen like that. You know, it takes time, effort, um, evaluating the capabilities of the leaders that you're taking over. And sometimes those capabilities didn't marry with what we wanted for future goals. So we had to make mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, if you have the right vision, the right support, um, and given some of the caveats that's going to go in between, it was actually quite successful. And after that successful part of your career, you then moved on to be your current position now, which is the global head of regions. And I wonder, is there that same sort of dynamic there where, you know, it's about marrying cultures and, and, uh, looking at things, uh, slightly differently, probably on a bigger scale, even from just the U S and Canada. Yeah. And, and, um, so it's funny because I was in my boss's succession plan at the time. Um, but it was a clear understanding that, you know, potentially me moving to Basel because it's a global role, um, was not in the cards for me per se. Um, and then when I spoke with my wife and my family, it's like, you know, it's a good opportunity potentially. Um, but I turned it down um, because I said, you know what? We're going to stay here, right? We have a great family unit. Um, and, you know, moving to Basel is is not in the cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the time, the global head came back to me and said, you know what? We want you and you could stay in the U.S. and we'll, we'll, we'll evaluate after a year. And I took the role. Fortunately, I'm a Portuguese citizen. My wife is, all four of my kids. And, you know, pre-COVID, we decided, okay, we're not going to move to Basel. But Lisbon, yes. We had the infrastructure uh, within Portugal and my family and her family. And we were going to move there. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) unfortunately, COVID happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And, the big C word. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that kind of, you know, was put on hold. And um, we we stayed, obviously, in the U.S. Uh, and kind of evolved. And, you know, the culture shock was when, when you're, even though I spent a lot of time in Europe and I traveled a ton, um, one of the things that I realized as a global leader was how much I didn't know mm-hmm. culturally, right? I had not been to Africa. I had not been to the Middle East, um, India, like all of these different cultures, which dynamics really change you as a leader mm-hmm. and it opens your eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's been the most wonderful five years traveling all around the world and shaping me as not only a human being, um, more importantly, um, and impacting it on my kids and, and, and sharing those lessons learned, 
and I could see the difference. Um, but um, as a leader, right, and adapting to the different evolving regulatory environment in the different parts of the world. And one of the things that I've realized in PV is that we focus on the big health authorities. Correct, yeah. And what I realized is now the evolving health authorities, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, you know, um, Africa, uh, like they really are demanding in nature and becoming more and more demanding, China, Japan, and they're departing from the big three, the big four, the big five, and doing really domestic related um, type of regulatory, you know, demands and environments and inspecting us. And that's where I've had to learn and adjust. And fortunately, we've done so really successfully. Um, you know, in the past 15, 16 months, we've had, I think it's about 19 PV inspections. Forget wow. about GCP and GNP inspections that PV is always pulled into. Yeah. No critical findings. Wow. No, no fines. Um, and that's really, you know, a testament to our preparation. Um, and we've done a really good job of that. And, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. <clears throat> so that, that there are a couple of things I, I, I've got off the back of that. Um, the first one I, I actually wanted to talk about, um, just taking a couple of uh, steps back from some of your comments, uh, about your your move and potential, well, lack of move to Basel and then your potential move to um, uh, Lisbon and COVID getting in the way. But do you think COVID in a, in a, in a weird way allowed you to be the global head much more effectively because companies were then saying, well, you know, people could technically work from anywhere? Um, we all knew it, but did it become more prevalent because of COVID? Did it become easier even? Oh, yes. And and this is the funny thing, that, and I tell people all the time, is, um, you know, I have over, you know, 700 associates, right, in 82 countries, okay? Um, that's just FTEs. What I found with COVID, which was very, I didn't expect this, was our talent pool, you know, because we weren't restricted from a locality perspective. In other mm -hmm. words, in the Netherlands, I could hire somebody a hundred kilometers away mm -hmm. from the home office. Our talent pool opened up tremendously. And I was able to hire in the Netherlands, in Italy, in China. Um, I can't even tell you how many countries, I mean, the list is extensive. Um, and they are all still there. And we were able to expand her, our horizons um, in our talent pool. And it worked out wonderfully. Um, for me personally, um, it, it was really nice because I, I didn't have to travel as much. Yeah. Right? And I was traveling about 60%. And just to give you an example, in January of 2020, 
I did 32,000 miles. Whoa. Yes. In just January of 2020, before right before COVID hit, I was in um, Basel, Frankfurt, Munich, Singapore, South Korea, um, Taiwan, uh, and I'm missing one. But any which way, it was three weeks, that amount of travel. And what we realized is we didn't need to do that. Yeah. Right? We didn't need to do it. Now, not minimizing the the impact on in-person contact, I think yeah. that, that establishes rapport, not only within your team, but within health authorities. There's value to that. But there's a balance that yeah. we have found. Um. Um, and I think the other piece that I probably didn't mention to you, um, is, you know, I did, when I started traveling again, when I came back from Morocco in May of 2020, uh, from my regional meeting there, I got very ill Oh, with COVID. Yes. Okay. And, um, I was in ICU for three weeks. Wow. Uh, I went into multi-system organ failure, heart failure, kidney failure. I was given less than a 20% chance of survival. And I was literally on my deathbed. Um, And I realized, you know, the priorities, uh, not only professionally, but personally, that we could do things differently. When I came Mm -hmm. back, unfortunately, I became healthy. um, And it kind of changed how I viewed, you know, travel with the the blend of my illness and COVID, it kind of it kind of like changed my perspective as a leader and as a human being. I I, I mean I can't imagine. I thankfully I uh, I've never been that ill. Even if I did have COVID, um, I I've never really tested positive for it, so I'm a bit lucky. Um, I remember when COVID came out, all the the different rumors of who was susceptible and who was going to get it worse. And I think I ticked every single box. So, uh, so I, I don't know how I got away with uh, not having it. But um, but it's funny, Indy. You know, um, and this is how unpredictable the disease is, right? If you think about it, January 2020, where I was, I was in Beijing. South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, right before it actually broke out, I never got sick. Mm-hmm. I have four kids. They all got it. My wife got it. Um, I had all the vaccines. I never lived my life in isolation when they got it. And the irony is I got it much later and I got sicker than everybody else. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I, I, I mean, uh, we won't dwell on COVID too much, but it is, it is the one thing that I believe has completely changed our safety profile within companies. Um, I, I've spoken to quite a lot of people who we talk about COVID potentially being the point where, you know, we were front page of the newspapers rather than some somehow trying to explain what we do in pharmacovigilance. Um, But going back to uh, the big three, the big three or big four, it could be, could be said is, is tends to be how we look at the FDA, EMA 
um, Japan, and sometimes MHRA comes in and out depending on if we're in Brexit or not. <laughs> but what is making these drivers for these regions to um, to diverse uh, diverse away uh, from or you know go away from the path of 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 the of the big uh, big three and also there's been some changes from some uh some of the let's say lesser known uh, regulatory agencies like south korea which have which have made drastic changes to both system side and from a process side what do you think these drivers are well <laughs> you know it, it, that's a little bit tough to answer because a lot of times you can't get into the mentality of the health authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, so we still have to focus on the big health authorities because a lot of, you know, it's a trickle down effect where people or, or different health authorities still, especially emerging health authorities, they still defer to the guidance from the big three, four, we say the big five and six um, mm-hmm. within Novartis, right? Um, and a lot of the bigger companies will look at those big five or six. Um, however, um, we're seeing that departure where, you know, the Korean health authority, mm-hmm. um, the Chinese health authority, right? They are really now going into very domestic and I don't, I don't, I don't want to use the word unrelated, but very specific to their local health authority and their demands. Sometimes in our view and in my view um, is unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the paths that we've done and I believe that all of industry should do is um, give feedback and establishing rapport with the health authority as the legislation is being established. Now, there are two paths. One, where you have feedback, and then the second one is where legislation is established without feedback. And establishing that rapport gives you an avenue to give feedback, positive and negative. What's possible, what's not possible. From a systems perspective, from a follow-up perspective, and that's where there's a lot of value in, in the active dialogue with the health authority. And believe it or not, they are very willing to listen. And if you really? come with valid arguments, and I wouldn't say arguments, I would say feedback on what's possible, what's not possible. And if we're looking at domestic cases, right, what are they asking, right? And that's the, the where you have to take a step back and say, okay, what's the reason that they're asking for A, B, and C? Domestic cases in clinical trials, you know, post-marketing, Let's see what we have available that we can get back or push back, um, you know, because a lot of it is not feasible sometimes. Um, and we've seen really positive outcomes in those dialogues 
with the different health authorities. Korea is a good example. China is a good example. Wow. So maybe, well, I'm I'm putting words into thoughts and thoughts into words even. Um, the the other question actually I, I had in my head was, so you went from being the head of the US and Canada where it was very much established health uh, and, uh, and and processes I I guess as well to to a much more global role. What was the what was your checklist when you first started that role? Like, what were you like? Right, what do I need to do? What needs to be improved? Are there processes? I mean, what was going through your your head as you as you went into that new role? Well, <clears throat> understanding the demands of the travel, and this is pre COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, is sitting down with my family, first and foremost, and my wife, um, my parents, my in-laws, because I knew the demand that it was going to take on my family with me traveling so much. That was the first and foremost thing. And if I had their support, I was going to move forward with this opportunity. And I did. Then... It was realizing, oh, geez, I'm in over my head. (laughs) I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. And fortunately, um, you know, I was a peer to a lot of the people that were going to report to me, you Mm -hmm. know, the regional heads. And I had to lean on them. And that's why travel was so, so important to go in person and, and meet with them understand their culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, demyth some of the things that was associated with somebody coming from the U.S. Oh, they didn't understand the culture. And, <laughs> and you know what? Even though I had a huge European flavor, right? I mean, I was Portuguese and, you know, spent so much time in Europe. Um, I realized that I wasn't culturally adapt or adept to understanding, you know, not only the regulatory authorities, but the cultural aspect of the different people in the countries, right? What made them tick, right? And, and adapt myself as a leader Uh to what worked, not only in the region, but in countries, Uh different countries within a region. Um, And that was a huge learning curve for me and i leaned on my regional heads and you know what and just have an open mind as a leader um push back right um share your experiences um especially where i I came from the bottom up right so more or less even though the country was different the region was different but a lot of the work was the same i see and that's where I needed to adapt. And it took me a few years, right, to open my mind to those different cultures, um, the different working environment, the different individuals. And, um, yeah, it was one of the best experiences that I ever had as a leader. Even and- today, five plus years later, I'm still learning. And that's wow. the wonderful thing about keeping your mind open as a leader is you think you've got it all figured out, but you don't. And it goes back 
to, you know, and it's funny how things become parallel over the course of life. When you worked in the emergency room, and it's funny, when you think you've seen it all. And somebody told me very early on in my orientation, they said, you think you've seen it all. And today, you're going to see something you never saw before. And you have to have the mental agility and the learning agility to adapt. And that's something that I've taken with me throughout my career. Because every time I think I got it figured out, something comes across in Malaysia, in Thailand, you know, in the US, in Canada, which alters your mindset. And you're like, oh, geez, I have to adapt here. I know we've we've had a previous conversation where you were saying that the Middle East specifically is quite demanding with their with what they require. What what did you mean by that? So um, especially the Saudi Health Authority and Egypt, um, they've adopted a lot of some of the global standards, Mm -hmm. uh, but similar to China. Um, they're doing a lot of domestic um, type of demands. And then if we look at our organization or global organization, any organization, um, and we look at aggregated documents, right? Usually a lot of the health authorities accept, you know, global RMPs, um, PSURs in, in the U.S., USPRs in lieu of uh, the PSURs. But now what we're seeing in these health authorities that are a little bit more domestically demanding is that they want something specific to their, you know, their patient population Mm -hmm. and something specific, specific from a documentation perspective an aggregated document perspective. So that becomes challenging, right? Uh, And that's some of the things that we're facing and other organizations are facing because if they want things expedited in a certain fashion, Mm -hmm. it it becomes a system issue, right? How do you suppress, you know, going to other health authorities versus that health authority? Um, and that's kind of what we're facing now across the globe, especially in the Middle East and in Asia Pac. We're seeing those things um, really create a burden. And I don't mean a burden, you know, from a risk to a patient perspective, but mm-hmm. a burden from a system perspective and actually making it all work. Uh, and that's kind of like where we're, we're, we're trying to balance you know, um, what works and also the dialogue going back dialogue with the health authority. So you touched upon systems there. Um, do you think that this is where AI could potentially help? Yeah. So yes and no. Um, you know, and I'm not going to go into the details of what Novartis has done, but me personally, in my experience and going to various conferences, 
is we talk about artificial intelligence, right? And the utilization of artificial intelligence. The reality is today, there is not a one-stop shop, okay? Mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't mm-hmm. exist. And I can tell you, I've been in sandboxes with 17 organizations. Um, it doesn't exist. Um, there are tools that can definitely help with AI that are out there, but they're in silos. So if we look at the different buckets, right? Follow up, uh, taking unstructured data into structured data, like in an inbox, in an email, um, uh, translation, legal cases, things like that. Um, we're not there from a maturity perspective. Mm-hmm. Will we get there? Absolutely. But what's going to be, you know, what we can use that's validated, quote unquote, from a health authority perspective? So mm-hmm. how I look at this, you know, when I said we can do a lot of stuff that we're seeing. However, if you're an inspection with an FDA inspector, can you validate artif- you know, um, AI tools? Can you do that? And the answer right now is no, to mm-hmm. some degree. Yes, there are possibilities. What's their comfort level of errors? Yeah. And I'm not sure what feedback you've received, but this is just my experience and it's been pretty extensive. Um, but I think there's a future there. It's, it's not mature yet. Going back to uh, another point that you made, uh, you were talking about, you know, previously one of your roles was doing with uh, risk management planning. Mm-hmm. How has that um, interwoven with your current role? Because you were saying how, you know, a lot of these um, emerging um, regulators are are doing – are doing pharmacovigilance at a at a much more local level with their local populations. Does that stem from the fact that their even the risk management plans also need to be very localized for their populations? And if so, is that also a difficulty in in putting in those risk management plans to all those different regions? Yeah. So I mean, it depends on the health authority and the expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, in the regulations, some accept, you know, um, what we do from an RMP perspective, right? They'll accept it, um, but some health authorities do have local regulations for local RMPs, and that's the challenge, right? That we have to do caveats for the different countries because it's regulation. Um, also some countries, you know, so if we look at an RMP, right, an RMP is broken down into several different annexes of, Mm -hmm. you know, preclinical, clinical, et cetera. Um, and then there are some health authorities that focus on the REMS part, which is the U S specific risk minimization part. Mm -hmm. And some accept that. And that's the blend that you have to kind of figure out. It's like, all right, what do they want? And that from a core perspective, we have to balance it out 
And that's been the challenge. Uh, it really has been. And it's evolving as we move forward, you know? Um, and also the assumption that health authorities talk, right? Yeah. Don't, don't, don't make that assumption. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they are very independent in nature many times, even though they do quote unquote talk. Um, but you see, uh, 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 you know, as legislation is being driven in the different countries and different regions, we realize that, you know, it's very different. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question for you. Sure. Let's say you, you are at a startup company who, for some reason, some miraculous reason, they have a, they have a wonder d- drug that has suddenly been accepted by every single health authority. How would you, how, as a, as a person from PV, make sure that you are covering all these regulations? And I'm saying this from a different point of view from a, you know, Novartis is huge. I'm, I'm talking about a smaller company, perhaps, who have just stumbled upon this amazing drug. Well, I'll be frank, it doesn't happen that way. No, I. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen that way. So the one thing about PV is you're like a firefighter, mm. right? You know, there there are fires that start that you have to, you know, fight. And the one thing that we know in PV is that um, very unlikely that a smaller health authority will be innovative in nature in 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 approving something. They will follow the bigger health authorities. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from a PV perspective, you always have to be guarded, right? This is great. It's going on the market. Um, and what you have to do is look at the product. Is it new, right? Is it new in the terms of a class of drug? Okay. Because that will always bring unexpected um, side effects. Uh, and I'm not going to give examples from Novartis, but I have various, right? Where we went through clinical trials and things were perfectly fine. And then we go into the post-marketing setting. Remember, your clinical trial subset is much smaller than your post-marketing mm-hmm. you know, set. And you have to like kind of project the class the drug and say, you know, from a PV perspective, um, what are the risks? What kind of due diligence do we do? And we've done this with various products, hyper due diligence. Okay. We got to get ahead of the curve. We don't want the health authorities telling us what our risks are. Mm -hmm. We need to do the data collection that's appropriate to identify our risks within our RMP, within our PSURs, within our USBRs, or other local safety documents. And that is what we do. That is fundamental to what we do, is to making sure that we are ahead of the risks. And what's the ultimate goal, Indy? The ultimate goal is to safeguard patients, mm-hmm. not protect the organization. Yeah, It's protecting patients. And I, 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 you know, it's really, 
it's not spoken enough about what we do in PD because at the end of the day, we're all healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. And every single one of us, you, me, my wife, my parents, you know, whatever family members, you know, whoever is listening here, we're all patients. And you want people like us that really have a vested interest in protecting patients. And that's what we do. So if you see a wonder drug, there's no wonder drug that doesn't have side effects. Everything Mm -hmm. has side effects. What's our job? To identify those side effects, quantify them, and communicate them appropriately to have physicians to make educated decisions in their prescribing practices. And that varies from country to country. Sorry, I I hope I answered your question. I got to be honest here. Tony, that was the most eloquent way I've ever heard PV explained to someone. <laughs> I, I think I will quote that many, many times. And you could quote it as much as you want because <laughs> it comes from the heart. Yeah. I, I'll be I, honest I, with you. You know, I'm really passionate about what I do. I'm really proud of what I do. And I have a wonderful team. And I've seen it in practice. I And I'm not going to get into details, but I've seen the safeguarding of, of patients' well-beings and what we do. Um and, you know, people don't understand it unless you live it. And I've lived yeah. it. I, I, I'm so happy that you that you brought it back to patients. Um, we're on the final stretch now. And I have to ask the next question, which is sure. the main question, really, because the uh, – the, the podcast is called Innovation and the Future of Pharmacovigilance. So my question has to be, what's next for PV? Where do we go next? What happens next? <laughs> so it's, it's really funny. In my view, again, this is my opinion, is we, we have to focus on fundamentals, right? If you go to inspections like I have, at the end of the day, there are fundamentals in how your database is run, how your clinical trials are run, how your post-marketing studies, whether it's a patient-oriented program, social media, um, how you collect data into your database is, is fundamental in whether you do risk management, signal detection, that is still fundamental. And, you know, a lot of people that I talk to in industry, you know, they forget about those key pillars that bring the data into your database and the evaluation of that data. Now, on the other hand, this is where the marriage of the future happens. It's, it's garbage in, garbage out. Good data in, good data out. And that's where we, at least I have found, that a lot of what we look at right now is garbage mm-hmm. in patient oriented programs, social media, lack of follow-up, lack of quality of, of what we are evaluating from a scientific perspective and what we can bring back to the regulators, patients, um, and the community as a whole. And that's where the future of PV for me is the marriage, right? There's a big gap in my view. But if we can 
data mine, right? What's out there? Um, if we can look at, you know, social media effectively, if we can look at patient-oriented programs, patient-oriented programs is a great example. Mm-hmm. That represents more or less 50% of the volume of post-marketing cases that come into, you know, um, especially the bigger companies that are really active. What kind of value are we actually getting from that data? The answer is really none. If we Mm -hmm. look at the value of what's coming in versus signal detection, right? Which what we do from a medical perspective, is there really any value that's changing our label, right? Our label, which drives prescribing practices. Is it really being done? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it is. Maybe in some other organizations it is. I don't see it. Um, But if we can marry the future of PV and, and, and really doing the appropriate data mining and evaluating that from a medical safety perspective, from a risk perspective, that's where I want to be, at least as a leader. Um, how can we do that and get rid of the gray, right? Get rid of the BS that we're just doing exercises like, you know, okay, we're going to enter this in, da, 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 but nothing really happens. Like it doesn't add any value. Yeah. And that's where I want to get to from an AI perspective. Um, is it going to happen overnight? No. I don't think it's going to happen. And some people will tell you one to two years. No. Unless we get the regulators on board and there's a marriage of convenience where we feel comfortable moving forward with such tools, do we feel comfortable being in that inspection room, defending something that we did, you know, you know, something a little bit different? Good luck. I, I don't think I feel that comfortable yet. Hope that makes sense. You know, that was that was fantastic again, Tony. Thank you very much. And Tony, thank you for 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 joining me today. There's there's so much more that I, we could talk about. And uh, I hope to um, be able to talk to you again soon. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And anybody that, you know, wants to discuss with me, I'm more than happy to talk about. Thank you. And um, that marks the end of series one of the podcast. We have a special episode for the end of the year with our co-founders. But for everyone else, I'll see you in season two. Thank you very much. (laughs) 